This is The Fall Line. The month of May is National Missing and Unidentified Persons Month. It's not something that's just observed online. Across the U.S., towns, cities, and counties are working to organize Missing Persons Days and events that serve the missing, the unidentified, and families who are still searching. Though these organized events are valuable resources, we found that families are often not aware of their existence even though there is outreach from victim services, post online, and other media. Some of that lack of communication may come because some missing have not been formally reported, or because of issues like change of address, phone numbers, case agent, or more. When we discussed the new missing person campaign for Raymond Green just a few months ago, it was made obvious that even with national media coverage and social media posting, people are still missed. That's why it's so vital to do the following. Please, check in your local community and find out if there's an organized Missing Persons Day event that's held. It may be annually or even more often, so that you can share that information on social media and with friends and family. These events vary a lot from place to place, but are now a major resource for family and friends who want to discuss new or long-standing cases. These events are also an important way of information gathering for unidentified persons' cases as well. They might be organized by local law enforcement, a coroner, a medical examiner, or any combination of groups. And, if the event is long-standing enough, you might even have the opportunity to volunteer. Working on this show, one of the things that family and friends ask us for most is information. How to submit DNA for public databases and for investigative genetic genealogy, how to get new photos uploaded to NamUs, how to access dental records, how to get in contact with hard-to-reach officials. And these Missing Person Day events can offer all of the above. We've been sharing event flyers on our social media this month, but we wanted to close out May by highlighting two events, one that's just getting started this year in our home city of Atlanta and one long-running event in Michigan. Our friend Nina, of the podcast Already Gone, has long volunteered for the latter event, Missing in Michigan, and she was able to connect us with its organizers. In DeKalb County, Georgia, that's a metro Atlanta suburb that encompasses parts of the city proper and a number of close suburbs, a new event has been established just this year. It's a combined effort of the DeKalb County Medical Examiner's Office and the DeKalb District Attorney's Office. This week, We want to give you a view of the different things these events can accomplish, both for friends and families of the missing and for the cases of the missing and the unidentified. To do so, we interviewed organizers who are new to Missing Persons Day events and a seasoned veteran. I sat down with Director Patrick Bailey of the DeKalb Medical Examiner's Office and with DeKalb District Attorney Sherry Boston, whose offices have sponsored the county's first annual event this year. Brooke spoke with Inspector Sarah Krebs, who has served in many Michigan law enforcement roles. Currently, she serves as Chief Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Officer for the Michigan State Police. The event she helped found, Missing in Michigan, is entering its 12th year. Getting perspectives from both ends, a brand new event 
and a long-established one, was really interesting and helpful for us, and we hope it will be the same for families and friends of the missing, too. One thing we get most often asked is how to access resources, and these programs are an essential step in that process. And we hope more officials hearing this will consider beginning their own. We've mentioned DeKalb Medical Examiner's Office numerous times on our podcast in the past. They were extremely helpful in our coverage of the case of Dennis Doe, the unidentified child discovered in 1999 in DeKalb County and who was identified last year as William Deshaun Hamilton. In recent updates on the case, we've quoted both DeKalb Medical Examiner Director Patrick Bailey and DeKalb District Attorney Sherry Boston, who've commented on the ongoing criminal case against William's mother and on William's identification. If you'll recall, it was the tireless searching of a childhood neighbor and babysitter of William's that led to his eventual identification and to the investigation into his death. As of the recording of this episode, his mother, Teresa Ann Bailey Black, has been charged with murder and is awaiting trial. Friend of the fall line, Kelly Lawson, you'll recall that she's the Georgia Bureau of Investigation's forensic artist, reached out to us in late April to let us know that DeKalb County would be hosting its first Missing Persons Day event this May. Kelly asked us to help share the event on social media, which we have, but we also wanted to sit down with officials to discuss the event itself, to capture what families can expect from such an organized day. This kind of work is not unique to our state, and we hope that other officials will see what DeKalb County, and as you'll hear later, Missing in Michigan are setting out to do, and establish events in their own communities. Although May is Missing and Unidentified Persons Month, such a drive can be held at any time of the year. In the following clip, you'll hear me speaking with DeKalb Medical Examiner's Office Director Patrick Bailey and with the DeKalb District Attorney Sherry Boston, whose offices co-sponsored this event. First, I'd love to hear about why you decided to schedule this event. What issues or gaps are you hoping to address in regard to the information the county has on our missing persons? Well, while we were investigating the case of William Deshaun Hamilton, members of our office learned that there were 27 unidentified human remains that were at the medical examiner's office. And the majority of those victims were believed to be victims of homicide. And so while we were working alongside our partners to help identify William and begin the process of bringing the person responsible for his death to justice, we were also starting to brainstorm of how could we ensure justice and do the same thing for more cold case victims. And so together with our partners, the DeKalb County Task Force that consists of the DA's office, the medical examiner's office, the FBI, the GBI, and the DeKalb Police Department, and also a private lab, Innovative Forensic Investigations, we started wondering, could this same team be helpful moving forward? And so in exploring how to solve these cases, we learned that other jurisdictions throughout the country had had missing persons events to generate leads and helpfully reach families who are connected to these victims. And so this event, the missing persons event and DNA drive is really an extension of the work started by that task force 
of all the great things we learned when we had the success of identifying William. Given the uh, resources and the attention the district attorney's office was provided on these cases, it generated a, 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 an enthusiasm internally here. And so the collaboration worked out great and everybody just kind of pulled up to the table and got started. So we interview a lot of law enforcement across the United States, specifically about unidentified persons cases. And one of the things that's pointed out to us the most is that when a John or Jane Doe victim is identified, it's really not uncommon to discover that a missing persons report was actually never filed for that individual. And those law enforcement members encourage us to discuss that issue with our listeners. Do you feel that an organized and focused event like this can address that problem in some way? I absolutely think it can. The intention of hosting a missing persons event is to create a space for people to come and make reports of missing loved ones separate from the police station. And by setting aside a day devoted to just these types of cases, you can inspire more people to come forward with information who might have all otherwise felt uncomfortable, scared, discouraged, all the things that go along with just walking into a law enforcement station. Instead of walking in to an event that sole purpose is to connect, identify missing people with the loved ones that have been searching for them. So events like this are really aimed at helping to educate the public about all the resources that are also available for missing person cases and dispel any misconceptions about the process. And we hope that the information can then spread through the community and that more people can learn about the options that they do have when they're looking for their missing loved ones. For example, a common misconception is that you have to be a family member to make a report. In fact, anyone with knowledge can make a report. You don't have to be a parent, spouse, or a child. So friends of missing individuals are often the most reliable resources for an investigation. And I'll point out that one of the most important pieces of us identifying William Deshaun Hamilton was not a family member, but a trusted friend and babysitter that had been searching for him. So it can be anyone that has a little piece of information that can help us pull the thread in an investigation. I noticed that you're asking families and friends, as you just pointed out, to bring in as much information as possible. Photos, descriptions, and pictures of tattoos, medical, dental information, copies of IDs. It's a really comprehensive list, and we will make sure to share that with our audience later in the episode. But I'd love to hear about why this is important, first for older cases, and then maybe also for newer cases. Sure. Well, older cases rarely have the benefit of all the resources that our current digital age has to offer. There wasn't Facebook or Instagram when folks went missing then. There weren't cell phones or cell phone tower informations to ping off when people went missing a long time ago. Older police reporting isn't always available in the digital formats that we have now. So there are cases that have just gone cold 
because there were no viable leads within that investigating jurisdiction. So for every reported person missing at our event, we plan to create or update their entry in the National Missing and Unidentified Person System, also called NamUs. It's a national clearinghouse and resource center for missing, unidentified, and unclaimed persons across the United States. So this particular program is used by medical examiner offices, law enforcement agencies, and the public to search and generate possible leads in identifying missing and unidentified persons. And so by sharing the types of documents that we ask for, we're asking for a profile to be created, and it allows law enforcement and private organizations to have instant access to the information provided rather than just the local jurisdiction where the person went missing. And so this type of nationwide information sharing through organizations such as NamUs has led to hundreds of cases being solved that might not otherwise have been. As a matter of routine on most cases, when we don't have an immediate identification, we do ask for this laundry list of items to be brought forward. So in this particular case or at this event, we're asking everything that you have that may help us, known tattoos, dental information, medical records, any and everything that you have, even photos that you may have had at the time that they went missing. We want you to bring all that forward. Anything, you may think it insignificant, but that insignificant photograph that was taken 10, 15 years ago may be enough for us to lead to an identification. And I imagine that, at least for some people, these will be items that perhaps they didn't find immediately when a loved one went missing, but perhaps they've come upon in the years since. We just mentioned a list of physical items that can be helpful to bring to these events or to offer when filing any missing persons report. And I want to be sure to note these now before we continue to get a little more specific. Photos of tattoos or birthmarks, if you have them, and as many photographs of the individual as you have from different angles are super helpful. Be sure you have those printed out versus just on your phone. If you have student IDs, driver's licenses, passports, or any photo ID of the missing person, be sure to make copies of that material and bring it in as well. Don't hand over originals of your documents. Again, make copies so you can maintain your own records. Medical records and dental records are also really important to get if you can. Dental records are something we discuss a lot on this show, but they aren't something that families always think about when a person goes missing, and that can be a major issue as time passes. That's something we discussed with the DeKalb Missing Event organizers. One thing that you mentioned and the things you're looking for are dental charts and dental information. And this is kind of a passion subject for me because dental charts are so important. And we discuss them a lot on the show as well because dentals can be so vital to identification. But many people don't know that dental records aren't kept forever. And the longer we wait to request those records, the less likely they are to be in the archives of a particular dentist. Do you have any suggestions for families of recently or long missing persons regarding dental records, how to get them, if they're able to obtain them, what they should do with them, et cetera? 
Yes. So most facilities have a timeline for how long records are retained due to storage capacity limitations. And usually we're finding that's about seven years. Additionally, records can be lost or discarded as dental offices change ownership or management. So family members should secure these records as soon as possible, just in case they may be needed for identification. And if they're able to secure the records, they should then be turned over to law enforcement so that we can enter those dental records into NamUs and secure it with the case file. This is really important if you suspect that foul play is at hands. Otherwise, they may have concerns that their loved one may be deceased. So the best practice is, is for families to work with law enforcement to secure the dental records, including x-ray images, any photos, notes, and charting that a, a dentist's office has maintained. And these documents would then be uploaded to NamUs for advanced searching and for any future comparisons. And NamUs also provides a records request form on their website, which can be used by law enforcement to request dental records. The most basic form of documenting those is charting. And I'll go back to what Dave Boston mentioned earlier. Some of your older offices didn't have the technology that we have available to us now. So dental charts are available almost everywhere. But again, that seven-year window, people purge records. So if you think they are available, reach out, obtain those, make contact with either law enforcement or your medical examiner coroner's office so that that information can be uploaded. Again, that may be one piece we're looking for. Just a note here, a dental chart is not the same thing as a dental x-ray. A dental chart is a simple template that dentists and other professionals use to track your dental work, like your fillings and other issues. And I'll also say that dental comparisons are typically quicker and more affordable than DNA. Yes. So it's just one way for people to get fast and quick information at a minimal cost. So a major focus of this event is DNA collection. And that's also something we talk about a lot on the show. Our listeners are familiar with STR DNA samples used in systems like CODIS, but also the SNP samples that are used for investigative genetic genealogy. What kind of samples will you be taking at the event and how will they be used? Sure. So we're going to be using two types of kits at our event. The first is what we consider to be a traditional buccal swab collection that's comprised of two cotton tip swabs that are placed inside the donor's mouth and inside the cheek and then rubbing to collect that sample. This results in a transfer of buccal cells to the cotton ball of the swab, which is then sealed and packaged and we submit that to the lab. And these swabs will be used to develop that traditional STR, YSTR, and DNA profiles from the missing person's relatives, which would then be uploaded into the FBI's National Data Index System, also referred to as CODIS, solely for comparing the DNA to profiles obtained from unidentified persons or remains. These samples are known as family reference samples, and it is encouraged that we collect samples from two or more close biological relatives of that missing person. 
So to submit these samples, we will both need an active case number for the missing person report that has been filed and a signed consent form from the relatives that choose to contribute that sample. So the second type of kit that we're going to be using is called Verogene, and it is donating a second type of family reference sample kit that will be used to generate a different kind of DNA profile known as SNP. So the collection kit is very similar and consists of two cotton swabs and two vials collecting a fluid designed to arrest bacteria growth. Like with the first kit, the family member's cheek is rubbed with the swabs and then the tips are placed into vials. The SNP DNA profile that is developed from this kit allows scientists to identify blocks of shared DNA between the family reference sample and an unidentified person. And so the resulting profile from these samples will then be uploaded into Family Tree which is a publicly available DNA database to search for potential familial relationships between the donor and the unidentified remains that have been uploaded into that public ancestry database. So to, to submit those samples, we will also need an active case number and a consent form from those relatives. For families to come and submit samples, they're curious about the process. So you're explaining it to them before they submit the samples. You have them doing it, and all of a sudden they 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 enjoy it. And then you have them watch you as you package the sample and walk them through the process afterwards. So it's a learning process with them. The more family members that come on board, that gives us enough of a sampling to submit, and they understand the process a whole lot more. This is one of the first times that I've seen investigative genetic genealogy via SNP testing mentioned at a missing persons event, which I find very exciting as that's something that I see an incredible future in. And DeCab is spearheading this themselves, right? Yes. So let me just say that a big part of the reason why we can afford to do the IgG testing is because our task force, when we saw the the great work that we could do and that we were all collaborating in this partnership and in it together, we were able to apply for a grant. And so we were awarded a three-year missing and unidentified human remains grant in the amount of $500,000 to help assist us to identify the remains of the 27 individuals found in DeKalb County. And so by having that significant funding source, and we were the only prosecution office in the country to receive funding for this project. It then allows us to utilize these very costly procedures to help solve these cases. And we have already had our first unidentified human remains solved with the case of Becky Burke utilizing this technique. And we're hopeful that our event can reach potential family members of our unidentified cases so that we can utilize this technique in their cases as well. The case that DA Boston just mentioned of Becky Burke was a recently identified Jane Doe homicide victim here in DeKalb County. Becky was found in Tucker, Georgia. That's a northeastern metro Atlanta suburb in 1993, and she was identified earlier this year with the help of investigative genetic genealogy. 
funded by a grant that the county secured. So not only is this event exciting to families and also to people who work in this field, it's also an incredibly important one. What seems to me to be maybe perhaps one of the most difficult pieces is reaching the families of the missing, who you really want to make sure see this information. How have you advertised the event so far? And what do you think are the most effective ways of getting as many eyes on that information as possible? So... Information about the event is on the medical examiner's website, and the medical examiner's office has also compiled a page on on their website with information and sketches of several of our identified individuals that we are encouraging the community to come visit and see if anyone looks familiar. But we've also been utilizing Eventbrite, email outreach, social media channels of all of our partners in the task force. We've printed flyers that are being distributed at community events, libraries, and police precincts. And our victim advocates are also reaching out to victim service organizations to get the word out about our event. And of course, we are spreading the word through as much media outreach as possible. We are trying to reach as many people in the community as possible. So just one last question, something I want to stress to listeners that I read on the website. Residents may come in and file new reports as well, right? So they're not just coming in to update on already filed missing persons reports? Yes, we're encouraging anybody that wants to file a new report that this is an opportunity to do so. A police report can get the investigation started no matter how old the case and get the information shared about the loved one nationally through NamUs, NCIC, and NCMEC. So we want to be an open resource of information, support, and assistance for anyone that is looking for a missing person. We want to highlight what DA Boston just mentioned. If you're a friend and not a family member of a missing person, please. Don't let that dissuade you from researching missing persons events in your area. To our knowledge, you may often participate and even file reports or bring in new information, like photos, to share. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you'd like to share? Well, I'll just note that we do have a cold case tip line. We'd ask that if you have information about any of the cold cases that are identified on the Emmys website or information about any missing persons or incidents that happened in DeKalb, you can contact the DeKalb County District Attorney's Office cold case tip line at 404-371-2444. Again, that's 404-371-2444. And callers may remain anonymous. And we'll be sure to link to that website as well. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. To learn more about longstanding missing persons events, we turn to our dear friend Nina Instead of the podcast Already Gone. For years, she's been a volunteer with Missing in Michigan, It's an event that began over a decade ago and was founded by Inspector Sarah Krebs. As we told you at the top of the show, she served in Michigan law enforcement for years, but is most recently in the position of the state police's chief diversity, equity, and inclusion officer. 
Missing in Michigan, at least on my part, came back in 2010 when I officially kind of founded the concept of Missing in Michigan. I was working a lot of missing persons cases in Michigan. So I've been a forensic artist with the Michigan State Police pretty much since I started. Once I I got off probation as a young trooper, I was inducted into our forensic art team. And I had a background in anthropology. So I started getting a lot of skeletal remains cases kind of right off the rip and solve my first cold case. It was a cold case homicide, solve this person's identity back in about 2004. And with that success kind of rode with a lot more skeletal remains cases that started coming into me. And working those types of cases, almost every single unidentified remains case that I ever had ended up being a missing person with the exception of one. And That brought me a lot of work with the family members of missing persons and hearing about their struggles and really kind of knowing that the reason a lot of these cases on the missing person side were not being solved is because we as law enforcement had their skeletal remains in storage and we just had never identified the person and that we've had them the whole time, but we couldn't put block A to block B to, to solve that case. And it was really um, the one of the first cases that I ever solved brought me kind of that idea that I could be that person, that I could do something about it. And, you know, with my forensic art talents and my connections within law enforcement, that I could be an advocate to those family members and to the unknown person. So I started doing that and uh, working that for many years. I realized really with the inception of NamUs, and if you don't know what NamUs is, the National Missing and Unidentified Person System, I was one of the first people that went through the NamUs Academy, and I was sent as Michigan State Expert in Anthropology. Working NamUs made me really realize that we were deficient in our record keeping, (laughs) that we did not have a lot of these records on file. And that a lot of the uh, family members were kind of left in the wind with not have any answers on their missing persons case, only because we were not doing a good enough job collecting that information in a database to be able to compare the cases. So that's really what Missing in Michigan came from, is a way for Michigan to start being better at record keeping and DNA technology at that point was new as far as collecting family reference samples from missing persons and connecting them back to unidentified remains cases. And I knew that we had to somehow get a lot of these family members together and start collecting their DNA so we could start solving these cases. And that's really what brought about Missing in Michigan was a one-day event, and it happened in May of 2011, where I set up an event. I was lucky enough to secure Ford Field, which is where the Detroit Lions play as our venue. And we held our first Missing in Michigan event. We had 42 families that year that came to celebrate with us. And really, we were recognizing the fact that these family members were crime victims for the first time, probably in their lives. And also, we were making it a proactive law enforcement event where we were actively collecting their DNA putting them into CODIS, 
We were making NamUs profiles online. We were updating their case files, making sure that they had investigators. Some of the cases we found were never truly even taken as a case by law enforcement. So we were securing them a case file and making sure that that case got investigated. And with that event and the many more that followed, we started being really successful in solving those cases. And now, you know, Missing Michigan has hundreds of solves, both on the found alive side and on the found deceased side. But we have given a lot of family members answers because of our events. A lot of the families that we we found a trend, at least in Michigan, that especially the colder cases, the ones that were back in the 70s, 80s, even into the 90s, they may have approached law enforcement, they may have gotten a case, they may not have, especially if their loved one was an adult or in a marginalized community. They may have been turned away by law enforcement at that point and never even given a case. And that was really what we started to see trending. And so no wonder we had these sets of human remains, you know, in the cemeteries and in the morgues and anthropology offices, because there was never a case to connect it to, because the ball got dropped 20, 30 years prior when that family had approached law enforcement to get a report and they were told no. We provided that venue for the family to get that case up and reported. And some of those, it was like shooting fish in a barrel. I mean, we were solving cases left and right because we finally had the case file. We finally had the match to the set of remains that we had been trying to identify for the past couple decades. And that with it partners with that family has been struggling for years. They haven't even gotten recognized by law enforcement that they had a missing person, let alone that they were the victim of, in some cases, a homicide victim. You know, their loved one was a homicide victim the entire time. And for the first time, they were actually recognized for what they had been going through. And that was that's a big key component to our events is the support to the families. That when you have somebody go missing in your life, it is absolutely devastating. It's never happened to me, myself, but I've watched so many families struggle through this. And what I can say is I believe that it is probably worse than a homicide case. Because if you think about in a homicide, usually you find out the the tragic results of what happened to your loved one. But from that point of getting that news, you're, you're basically able to start the grieving process. You can start... Uh, planning their funeral, you can start making preparations, you know what to do because you've been given an answer. In a missing persons case, that family is really suspended by the fact that their loved one has not been found. And there are no answers and there is no going forward. You are just stuck. And some of these families get stuck in that status for decades. Sometimes they die without ever finding out what happened to their loved one. And if you can imagine that, imagine going into every holiday and every birthday, not knowing, are they going to be there? Are they coming home? Should I buy them a present? Should I make a place setting at the table? It is so heart-wrenching to watch these families go through that because they just don't know. They just have no answers. And Missing in Michigan was always, that was a big part of it, was that we needed to give them support. Coming from law enforcement, coming from the other family members, they needed some sort of support structure 
to just keep moving forward and to keep the hope that their loved one was going to be found. Brooke asked how Inspector Krebs' experience with Missing in Michigan has affected her approach to educating investigators and their approach to families of the missing. Well, I can tell you that is a big component of it, is that we try to get these investigators to our events so they understand the importance of the struggles that these families go through. We've been very intentional with that, especially in recent years. We started a law enforcement training that happens at our event on the same day at the same time so we can intentionally blend the family members with members of law enforcement so they can actually meet in person, that they can hear each other's stories, and that they can get an honest kind of victim impact to understand why it is so important to take that report, but also why it's so important for them to continue corresponding with that family. Because we have heard in some of the trending reports that we've followed through the years is that that's one of the biggest gripes from the families is that if they do get a case, which is more common today than it was 25 years ago, They meet with their detective maybe the day or the officer that took their case, and they never hear back from them. And then it's a constant having them try to track them down or constantly trying to get a call back from that law enforcement agency. And we want to try to turn the investigators so they understand how important it is that these people are crime victims and that they need support and that they need to at least hear from their investigator. They need to hear back from them. One thing that Brooke pointed out was something that has come up on our show before, that often families don't hear anything because there's been no activity on a case. Inspector Krebs told us how Missing in Michigan has tried to address that issue as well. That's one of the big components also of Missing in Michigan is, so from the investigator side, because I have been an investigator for over 20 years, a lot of us have never had this experience happen to us. And so it it is a little bit hard because we do not have the experience of it. And if you're not an empathetic person, which I wish that I could say that everybody in law enforcement had empathy, but not everybody in law enforcement has empathy. It is a skill that not everybody comes into it with. And that can, that can be hard, you know, and they might not be good at that. And that's not always their best side. They might be a great investigator, but they're not really good at dealing with people. And That's another place that Missing Michigan can come in is we provide support to the families and not always from the investigator side. Sometimes it's from another family member that has been through it. A lot of times we are matching up our family victims with another family victim that can give guidance and that has been through all of the emotional turmoil. So what we'll do is we'll see a family, we'll kind of get the idea of what happened to their person, like age, demographics, where they went missing at, what are the details of the case. And we'll try to find another family that has a very similar experience in their missing person, whether they found them or not. Some of them are still missing. Some of them, they recovered them alive. Sometimes they recovered them deceased, but we set them up with each other and say, in a lot of our family members that have been with Missing in Michigan for a long time, they volunteer for that. So they want to be matched up with another family that they can give guidance to and give support to. 
So we will set them up. We will share numbers with them because sometimes that's a better person for them to talk to than their own missing persons investigator. And it kind of takes the burden off of the investigator as well, that they don't have to give all this emotional support. They can focus on the investigation and what they need to do. And then Missing in Michigan, the advocates that work for Missing in Michigan can step in and provide that guidance to that family. Which is such an important aspect because almost everyone that we talk to who has a relative who is still missing will at some point talk about how isolated they feel because they don't know anyone who is in their same situation. Yeah, if if you think about it, this is a very small club of people, and it's a club that nobody ever should volunteer to be a part of, but unfortunately, it happens to families across the nation. But it's really hard also to find other families that are in that same situation. There's not like a list online. The internet definitely provides a lot more support than we had 25 years ago when I first started in law enforcement. We didn't have any of this. So at least we do have a lot of online support. But to find that outside of Michigan, I don't know how many states have an organized approach to that. And that's one great thing about Missing in Michigan is it's really pretty well known on uh, social media forums that if you have somebody missing, this is where the information goes to get shared. And they will direct families, even the general public that knows about Missing Michigan will direct other families like, hey, have you talked to them yet? You know, have you posted on their sites yet? Because this is really the way that you get answers. Because Missing in Michigan is a force. Our Facebook group has over 100,000 members. And not all of these members obviously have missing persons. A lot of these are just advocates, people that want to help. And I never envisioned that that was going to happen. When I started Missing in Michigan, there wasn't really like the thought that this was going to be like a digital social media workforce, but I can tell you that that is almost where all of our cases go to get solved is social media. And that's a really big innovation in missing persons cases is if you think about it, 40 years ago, we didn't have the internet and the best we could do was a milk carton. And today we have the internet. And how great is that to share information? I mean, it's unbelievable what you can share online. It's also unbelievable what people share online. And I'm always amazed by how many cases go viral without a law enforcement agency present. A lot of missing kids are posted online with no police department even working it or even having knowledge that we're missing kids. And it can be kind of a mess, to be honest. And it's a full-time job. And that's why we're really strict on making sure that they do and that the family members aren't exposing themselves by posting their personal cell phones or, hey, contact me. It's like, no, no, nobody on the Internet should be contacting you about your missing persons case. They should be contacting the police department that is investigating it. And it takes also the burden off of the families to feel like they have to be investigating their own case. That's really not what they should be doing. If, if you have a loved one that's missing, you should not be taking the tips. People should not be calling you and telling you that they saw your loved one at a drive through and then you're running out there trying to find them. Most of those sightings are not accurate. And that's kind of what law enforcement does is we try to filter out the real tips from stuff that goes on in these cases. Of course, I'm sure you can imagine that the family members really should not be exposed to. Brooke asked Inspector Krebs to describe how she began missing in Michigan to give a blueprint 
as to how officials in other areas might begin their own events and what suggestions she might have. When I first started, it was a pretty innovative idea that I was going to hold an event for missing persons and their families and for law enforcement and for the media. It was kind of like, it was so multifaceted. Nobody really knew what I was trying to get at. And I brought together a planning committee of other members of law enforcement and also a family member and a person from the media. Because those were kind of my, my three legs of the stool, if you will, that I felt were important in missing persons investigations that you you need obviously the the family of the missing person as support you need the law enforcement agency but you also need the media you need somebody to tell people what is happening that is a huge part of it so i brought them together in kind of a steering committee and my first event was really meant to be small it was meant to be kind of a local like Southeast Michigan in the Detroit area based approach to getting some DNA on file for some missing persons cases. And I really had a great boss at the time where he took my idea and he was like, why so small? He's like, we're blowing this up. He loved the idea. And he really talked me into why a parking lot? Why aren't we having this at a stadium? And he knew a guy that knew a guy that knew somebody at the Detroit Lions. Next thing I know, I had the event of like really of Detroit. You know, I had Ford Field for the day. I mean, it, I couldn't have asked for more. It, it was really a great venue. And it really did bring a lot of like elevation to the event. Once I had that pretty sweet venue, I had a lot of people interested, like what is happening here, you know? And because of that, that first event was so successful. A lot of the media outlets, because I included them from the start, were there and they were filming it. They loved the idea. And it was kind of funny because I never meant it to be an annual event. I meant it to be a one-day event. It is now in its 13th year. It's become a movement. It's it's not just a one-day event. Like I said, the, the social media forums are a 365-day full-time job. It's no longer just an event. It is really a its own entity. And in fact, five years after I started Missing Michigan, I founded it into a nonprofit because we did have a lot of people that wanted to donate. And I worked in the government. I couldn't take money from people. It, it was really a challenge. So I founded it as a 501c3 and could actively accept donations. And that helped immensely with the payment of you're not getting anything for free these days, unfortunately. I'd like to say that everything, you know, people pro bono everything, but they don't. Even when you get a sweet event venue, you're still paying for the AV and the food and some of the advertising and the flowers and not everything comes to me for free. So that was, I think, a big part of it is that founding it as a nonprofit, being able to accept donations and to fundraise for the events has has drastically changed it as well. And we're able to do a lot more by giving back to the families as well, giving back to the families, giving back to law enforcement. I just got a request from a local agency for funding for a DNA venture. And that's exactly what we want Missing in Michigan in place for, to continue forward movement on the missing persons cases. And what a great way for us to do that, but pay for some DNA work to be done when when law enforcement agencies cannot handle that type of cost to their agency. I have seen 
missing in Michigan-esque groups grow throughout the country. I think there's about probably about 15 other states now that have something in place, kind of like Missing in Michigan, and most of them call themselves like Missing in Colorado, Missing in California. There are these these different groups that have grown up. They're all a little bit different. I think Missing in Michigan is still one of the the most innovative with trying to like kind of bend with the trends like our event it really downscaled obviously everything downscaled with covid we went online for two years but even coming out of the the covid wake we really changed the structure of our events because now a lot of our our backlog and dna has been handled and we don't need a full service dna unit set up at our event like we used to most agencies are now collecting on their own, which we love to see because we really feel like we started that kind of awareness and that trend for law enforcement to start doing that. Um, but we, we still will do that at our events. We still have the capability to collect DNA to start new cases if they arise. We have law enforcement on site that will kick off that initial investigation and, and farm it out to the correct jurisdiction after the event. So we're still keeping that part of our event true, that that was kind of what we we actually started with the idea that we had to collect DNA. So we're never going to stop doing that. But what we found is it's a lot of the cases that come to us already have DNA collected and we don't even have to do it anymore, which is awesome. Another big thing that I feel like Missing in Michigan has created is just the awareness campaign throughout the state that turning the family members away when they come in for a missing persons case is unacceptable. And we have seen a lot of law enforcement agencies in our state completely revise their policy on missing persons investigations to align in a more victim-based approach where they are not imposing timelines, they are not turning families away because their loved one was an addict or was in a bad relationship and they think that they're going to come back tomorrow. They're still giving the family members a case file. So they're giving them a case number and taking their case where a couple decades ago that probably wouldn't have happened. They probably would have been turned away and had no such luck coming into an agency for a case. At the close of their interview, Inspector Krebs reflected on her years with Missing in Michigan and what she hopes will come after she retires from law enforcement. Like I said, I've never had a missing person in my own life. And this truly came out of my God-given talents as an artist and the fact that I started working these types of cases and just gained that empathy to these family members. It was very organic how it happened. I never would have thought you know, this this isn't something that like I came into the career to do that even my anthropology background, I never thought like, wow, I'm going to go and solve some missing persons cases someday. Never even fathomed where this would bring me. I kind of love that though. You know, it really developed out of a need that was present and I found my niche and I realized I was pretty good at it and I'm going to keep doing it you know, and I've done it now for over 20 years. And I am going to retire in two years, I'll put that out there. So I'm hoping that that this will keep going, that it's not going to die with my retirement, that there's going to be somebody that's going to take the reins as I leave, and make sure that missing persons are always in the forefront in our state. 
As we said at the top of the episode, though most of these events do take place in May, there are other local drives and events scheduled throughout the year. Once again, we encourage all family and friends of the missing to check websites of their local law enforcement, medical examiners, and district attorneys to see if similar events are being hosted in your area. If they aren't, you can write in and suggest that the county begin hosting them. Local city council persons and other representatives may be interested in helping you as well. We are happy to maintain a list of the local events that we know of, and we will begin that list under the news tab on our website. We'll have that up by the time this episode releases, and we will update it whenever someone sends in new event information. Thank you for listening. We will be making some major announcements concerning the fall line just a little later this summer. As we mentioned last episode, this June, we're re-releasing the case of Shykemia Pate in hope of encouraging new leads, and we have lots more coming to you soon. Make sure to stay subscribed to keep up to date. If you know of a case that should be covered on the fall line, there's a link to our case submission form in the show notes. The Fall Line is an independently produced show, and we appreciate listener support. It allows us to do research, obtain FOIA, pay our content advisors, and support and donate to the causes we care about. If you try out the products we advertise, please use our sponsor codes. It really helps. And please take a moment to rate and review our show in your podcast app of choice. If you're interested in pre-ordering my book, which covers a year of my life working on a Jane Doe case in the world of forensic scientists who resolved unidentified persons' cases, you can find a link in our show notes. It's called Lay Them to Rest, and it's out this October. Pre-ordering the book is a big factor in its success, so I appreciate it. And if you'd like to support the show and the stories we cover, join us on Patreon. We're raising Patreon funds to continue to pay for the Millbrook Twins billboard and to fund therapy for families who've been on the show. Each and every one of our patrons helps us to continue this work, and we're so grateful for your help. On Patreon, you can get early release, ad-free versions of our regular episodes for $5 a month. We also have occasional video live streams and blogs, which all patrons can enjoy starting at just a dollar. If you prefer Apple Premium, We've begun that feed as well, so you have an alternative way to contribute. The Fall Line is written, hosted, and researched by Laura Norton, with additional research by Brian Warders, Kiana Burgess, and Michaela Morrow. Interviews by Brooke Hargrove. Produced, engineered, and scored by Maura Curry. Content advisement by Brandy C. Williams, Liv Fallon, and Vic Kennedy. And, as always, our most special thanks to Liz Lipka and Sarah Turney. As of November 2022, our monthly donation is going to Season of Justice to support their testing and family grant initiatives.